Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. Maybe you've heard the term before. It's kind of going around right now, but they're called ex-angelicals. Not to explain it too much, but an evangelical that no longer claims his evangelical heritage would define himself as an ex-angelical. It kind of goes hand in hand with this kind of movement to kind of deconstruct Christianity. We've seen a lot of this happen. We've seen a number of, of, of kind of high-profile uh, servants and pastors and worship leaders and whatnot kind of leave the evangelical movement and describe themselves as either no longer Christian or no longer evangelical. One of those a few years back, was by the name of Marty Sampson. Marty Sampson was a worship leader for Hillsong, and he put this out on his Instagram a few years back. He said this, he said, time for some real talk. I'm genuinely losing my faith, and it doesn't bother me. Like, what bothers me now is nothing. I'm so happy now, so at peace with the world. It's crazy. This is a soapbox moment, so here I go. How many preachers fall? Many. No one talks about it. How many miracles happen? Not many, and no one talks about it. Why is the Bible full of contradictions? No one talks about it. How can God be love yet send four billion people to a place all because they don't believe? No one talks about it. In an ironic moment, when the writers of Christianity today reached out to the Hillsong group, they didn't want to talk about it, right? In fact, there's a kind of movement afoot here. And Marty Sampson's just one voice amongst a crowd of people that have kind of given themselves to this deconstruction of their faith. Curtis Vanderpool kind of defines it like this. He says, deconstruction is a popular term that refers to the practice of revisiting and rethinking long-held beliefs, specifically in the area of Christian faith. And there's been some work done by people like Richard Rohr. Richard Rohr defines that uh, every person of faith comes through these processes of construction, deconstruction, and reconstruction, and we all kind of go through this process, as it were, but some of us never go through the deconstruction, or never get to the reconstruction phase. We, We build it up, and we tear it down, and then we leave it there. But honestly, this morning, I don't think our concern is deconstruction so much as it is just boredom, so much as it is just distraction from the things that the Lord calls us to. Our temptation isn't some uh, highly philosophical engagement with the ideas. Our temptation is just to be more enamored with the things of the world than with the things of Christ. Isn't that where most of us are? See, for us, the, the threats to vibrant faith are things like boredom and distraction It's fitting that when Jesus talked about what faith was like in Matthew 13, he talked about what the kingdom of God was like in Matthew 13, and he lays out this parable, and he says, hey, the the kingdom of heaven is like this this, uh, farmer who goes out and sows seed. And two of these four different seeds that he talks about uh, initially kind of spring up. One springs up, he says, with joy, and then because of persecution, uh, they get choked out. The other gets, springs up, and he says, because of the, the thorns and the thistles that grow around it, because of the cares and concerns of this world, it gets choked out and it never produces fruit. 
See, Jesus told us that there would be those who didn't make it to the finish line. Those that initially showed joy and hope in the faith, but then eventually abandoned it. And the question before us this morning is, how is it that true Christians press on? How are we to continue amidst the difficulty of a world pressing on our faith and the world beckoning us to different faiths? Now, I know here's the truth this morning, right? Many of us here this morning are tired, weary. Many of us face the difficulties of sickness and difficulty, a hard job, a hard relationship, a uh, sickness, or whatever else. This morning, I want to take a few moments just to listen in to what the Lord has to say to us from Philippians chapter 3. How do we continue? How do we press on? And what does Paul give us to that end this morning? See, here's our big idea. See, the Christian presses on to claim what has already been freely given in Christ. The Christian presses on. He, he disciplines himself for the purpose of godliness. He presses into patterns of prayer and study and everything else so that he can take hold of what has already been freely given in Jesus. This is the language that Paul seems to use, specifically in verses 12, uh, as, as we turn to our passage this morning. But uh, we're going to see this in three different phases. First, we're going to see Paul's exemplary mindset in verses 12 through 16. Secondly, we're going to see Paul's exemplary work in 17 through 19. And then we're going to see the Christian's worthwhile future in verses 20, 320 through 4.1. I want to stop here for just a second and say this passage is a little bit different. And I want to pull something out of this book for just a second Oh, and go ahead and pull up the slide here this morning. What, what Paul is doing is, is that Paul's presenting us with a certain strategy, and Gordon Fee kind of pulled, pulled this out with this diagram. So I've stole the, stolen this. I stole it. I done stole it, right? Uh, he I stole this from Gordon Fee. But uh, Paul, is what, he, what he's doing is throughout the book of Philippians, he's showing us how he lives his life with Jesus, kind of that left side of the triangle. And particularly, he's going to show us two aspects this morning. He's going to show us his mindset, and then he's going to show us his conduct. I had to look back and remember what the second one was. Forgive me. And then what he's going to do on the other side of this triangle, he's going to say, you guys do the same thing. And he's going to call these Philippians to imitate him as they pursue Jesus as well. And so what Paul is doing is he's laying out the fullness of his life and inviting others to consider him so that they might also press on. And so when we open up this passage, then we're going to see these two places where Paul opens up his life and lays out himself as an example to be followed. So let's dive in. In verses 12 through 16, Paul's exemplary mindset. Look at verse 12 with me. Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. See, Paul starts off with his story. He's been telling us his story going all the way back uh, to 
uh, the beginning of the chapter in verse 4 through 6, he lays out his resume. He tells us all the things that make him righteous, right? He was born a Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day. He's done this and that and the other. He's persecuted the church, and so he has this flawless resume. But then in verses 8 through 12, he tells us how this former life is like dung. It's like cow poop, right? We talked about that last week, a very memorable moment, right, for us to talk about cow poop and how it's in the Bible. But his righteous life was a, uh, a thing to be left behind. It was valueless. And now Paul is kind of continuing on in this story. He's talking about his present day. The, he wants to bring us into this analogy, right? He's saying we press on in verse 12. And then he repeats the phrase again uh, in verse 14. He presses on. He's inviting us into the analogy of the athlete, the athlete that uh, even through difficulty and pain is pressing on to take hold of the prize, right? And Paul's inviting us into this. That Notice that Paul hasn't attained anything yet. His resurrection hasn't been fully realized. So Paul presses on. He's already used that term, press on, way back in verse 6 about how he persecuted the church. And now he's using it here for us to, to realize that we need the diligence and discipline to press on in our faith. And so what he does is he gives us his example in verses 13 and 14. And what he does is he, he gives us two different things that he's done. He forgets and he presses. In verse 13, he describes his forgetting, right? Look at verse 13 with me. He says this, he says, uh, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. He's highlighting this idea of forgetfulness of this former life. He's leaving behind his resume. He no longer clings to the self-righteousness that he so valued before. And by forgetting, Paul is merely saying that he doesn't value it any longer. It's not worth his effort and consideration. And these things no longer hold value for him. It's worth noting here this morning that some of us are tired and weary because we haven't forgotten our former life. We have one foot left in the life we left and one foot left in the life that we have in heaven, our citizenship in heaven. And it is an equation for perfect misery. When we try to do worldly things and godly things and mash them together, it doesn't work. And if you're here this morning and you're weary and you're tired and you're worn out, that's warning light number one. Have I left behind the former life that I claimed to have left behind in Christ? But he doesn't just leave behind. He doesn't just forget. He presses on. In verse 14 or verse 13, he says that again. He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God. I strain forward in verse 13. So Paul presses Verse 11, he kind of hinted at this in our last section yesterday. Look at what he says in verse 11. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What Paul is pressing toward is not this ideal of Christian perfection. It's not this idea of just self-righteousness. In fact, that's the very thing he's left behind. What Paul is pressing forward to is the hope of resurrection. He presses to finish well. See, Paul's only assurance that he would be resurrected with Jesus is to continue on in this faith. It's to continue on in this hope of Jesus Christ to eschew the former life and to put on this righteousness with Christ. That's his hope. And it's the only assurance of that true hope that he has. I wonder sometimes if the Marty Sampsons of the world recognize that that hope is now null and void. 
that there is no hope of resurrection because they have left that claim. When we abandon the faith, we have no claim to resurrection any longer. And so Paul gives us his example in verses 13 and 14, and then he turns the corner to an exhortation in verse 15. Look at what he says. Let those of you who are mature, that's like one of the best ways to manipulate people. Well, if you were mature, you would do that, right? We do that with our children all the time. If you were like an adult, you would do this, right? Paul's kind of tweaking them a little bit. For those who think like a mature person, think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Paul's exhortation is to think like him. Let those of you who are mature think this way. Like the, the life that I just described about myself, I want you to think like that. And I'm not even sure that think is the right word here. You know, we, we had this word used previously in this epistle. It's been used in chapter 2 where we would have the mind of Christ. And Christ wasn't just filled with all these intellectual realities. That's what not, not what Paul is saying in Philippians chapter 2. He had an attitude that did, didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing and took on the form of a servant. See, we don't just put on thoughts and kind of uh, write theologies and a mindset. No, what we put on is an attitude that's in keeping with our hope that we have in Christ. See, Paul wants these Philippians to have a pressing posture, not just an intellectual vibrancy, but a, a pressing posture of service, of pressing forward into this hope of resurrection. He wants them to put on a sense of urgency and importance in their gospel-rooted living. See, the truth underneath this passage is that the faithful Christian life is spurred on by ideas, that we, we think and we, we interact with concepts and that concept kind of sinks down into our heart and drives us and, and motivates our correct behaviors. See, Christians see kingdom importance in the smallest of actions. We think about this? We consider all of life to have the capability of holiness. And so Paul confronts a dear brother in Christ about who he eats with in Galatians chapter 2. And Paul writes things like 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where he says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. See, to Paul and to us, all of life is important because all of life could be Godward. In our Christian worldview, our ideas about God and the world and ourselves they affect every single second of our existence. Those ideas fill every action with either faith or disbelief. Every moment is either directed at God's purpose or stands as an act of rebellion. See, our ideas spur us on to action. Paul calls us then in that milieu to, call it, to put on this way of thinking in verse 13. Let those of you who are mature think this way. He's going to provide the mental fuel in verses 20 and 21. He's going to give us this idea that would spur us on to this pressing on, to this righteous behavior, this righteous mindset. 
See, I'm afraid that some of us have lost contact with that. We, we see the big moments as where our Christianity shows out. We see it in the fight in our marriage. We see it in uh, the time we shared our faith with our coworkers. We see it in our moments of baptism, uh, our public moments. We see it on Sunday mornings. We show up and we, we act righteous. But on a Monday afternoon at 2.35 when you're working on the TPS reports at the office, do you note that God can be glorified in you? Do you know that when you're cleaning the floor for the 15th time after your kids have spilled something, that God can be glorified in that yet again? Right? See, it's the truth of Christianity that our ideas actually press us into our behaviors and our actions. And the hard work we have to do is to connect this random job that we have with the truth of who Jesus Christ is and his lordship over all things. truth is that God isn't just interested in how we think. Verses 17 through 19, Paul is once again going to draw attention to our way of life. He's not just telling us how to think, think this way. In verse 17, he's going to say, imitate me, imitate my walk, imitate what I do. And so look at verses 17 through 19 with me this morning. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. See, Paul calls these Philippians to imitate him, right? Technically, he doesn't just call them to imitate him. He calls them to imitate him and anyone else who imitates him. (laughs) That's what he says there, right? Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in me, right? And this isn't the only time that Paul said this. He's actually made this kind of a a calling card for his ministry. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, he says, and you became imitators of us. In Philippians 4, later on, he'll say that what you learned and received and heard and have seen in me, practice these things. Paul's not shy about making himself a mentor. He's not shy about being a role model, as it were. If you grew up in the 90s and were a sports fan, you remember Charles Barkley saying, I am not a role model because he wanted to sell sneakers, I think it was, right? The truth of the matter is that everyone's a role model, that we're all kind of bumping into one another, uh, emphasizing and de-emphasizing certain things. We're, We're affecting one another the way we think and the way we act, that all of us are having influence on all of us all the time. And so when we deny that we're a role model, when we deny that we're affecting the lives of others around us, uh, we're in denial about some truth about ourselves. See, everyone is a role model for good or for ill. Paul's just embracing it. Specifically, he tells them to follow their example. This call is to copy him in all of life's details. Paul's not caveating. Well, follow me in my sexuality or in my view on finances or follow me in this area, but not in this area. I'm exemplary here, but I'm not exemplary over here. Paul's inviting them to open up the doors to see every aspect of his life. It's not to say that Paul's not a sinner. Certainly Paul was. But what Paul did was he embraced the the truth of Christianity, and it affected all of the areas of his life. And when he failed, he 
confessed and repented, and when he succeeded, he gave God the glory and the thanks. Verses 18 through 19, Paul flips it, and he starts talking negatively about uh, people who are negative examples, right? In verse 18, he says this, he says, For many of whom I have often told you, now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And he describes them in verse 19, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Let's just walk through this description that Paul gives us. They walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. That term walk is just kind of a, a description of our behavior. It's, it's used throughout the New Testament. It's the word peripateo. It's kind of just this idea of monotony. It's the, the way you live. And so Paul's advocating that these guys have lived as enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul's describing those whose conduct falls short of the standard of God in Christ. So the truth is, we really don't know who Paul's t- talking about here. There's lots of examples in Philippians about Paul could be talking about those that he was talking about in chapter 1 who preached the gospel with selfish motives. He could be talking about those he talked about in chapter 3 that were the dogs, the mutilators of the flesh. We really don't know, but he gives us this description that they're enemies of the cross of Christ. And if they're enemies of the cross of Christ, that it follows that their end is destruction. It's a natural outcome for opposing the cross. These people should expect eternal judgment from a righteous and holy God. That's why Paul says that he now tells them with tears. He says their God is their belly. And what an interesting discussion about idolatry. Makes me not want to eat a heavy lunch this afternoon, right? God is their belly. They just think about the next meal. Their their minds are so focused on worldly things that all they can think about is just satisfying their pleasures. Like animals, they're driven by the natural urges of their body to just find the next iteration of whatever it is they're seeking out. They have minds set on earthly things. If they only think about the bodily desires that happen within them, they naturally turn to the things of earth to fulfill them. They're thinking about riches. They're thinking about sex. They're thinking about food. They're thinking about power, authority. Everything that is unique about them can be bound up inside of this globe, this atmosphere, the earth, right? I was thinking about this earlier this week, like, Black Friday's happening this Friday, right? And I'm guilty. I've done the Black Friday thing many times, okay? So I'm not being self-righteous about this. But you see these videos of like people trampling over top of one another to get to a TV or whatever else. And it's a picture of this very thing that they're driven by their worldly urges inside of themselves and they have no recourse or no connection with the people around them. Now, you'll probably see some video of me charging toward a thing or whatever, but I recognize that if we're not tuned in to what God has for us in the heavenly realms, all we're left with is earthly things. See, the faithful Christian life is spurred, not just by the way we think, but it's, it's spurred on by righteous living. Sin reroutes your soul's affection to something that isn't Jesus Christ. 
Romans 8 is so clear about this, right? Romans 8, Paul says this. He says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. And it goes on to say that not only do they set their minds, it's like they can't perform the law. The, the righteous law that God gave, like the Ten Commandments, they, they literally can't love or honor their father and mother. They can't not steal. They can't help but break the law. And it goes on to say that they can't even please God. That when we were left in our sin, we were stuck in sinfulness to the degree that we couldn't actually perform anything righteous, anything honoring or pleasing to God. See, sin will occupy the mind of any flesh-driven person to the extent that they can't think of anything else other than themselves. And they, all of their actions kind of just terminate on what they want and what they desire. Ever see, uh, like in the movies where, um, you know, there's an action film happening and someone's out in the jungle and one of the party gets stuck in quicksand, right? Like, and it shows this person, he's got quicksand and it's up to his ankles and then it pans away and the next scene it's up to his neck. Like, it just like happens so quickly, Right? That's what sin is for us. When sin takes hold of us, there's nothing we can do to escape it. The more we try to escape, the deeper we go into it. And what we really need is for someone outside of the sand, uh, of the quicksand, to, to throw us a lifeline, as it were, to rescue us from our sinfulness. See, if we're to continue in faith, if we're to press on, we have to abandon our sinful habits. See, sin's goal is the abandonment of your faith. I love an author by the name of John Owen. And he wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin and the Believer. Actually, it's like 400 words long, just the title. So it's true nerd content right there, right? But he says this. He says that sin's end in us is always our destruction. That the aim of sin in any particular temptation is not just that you would give in to that temptation, but that eventually you would give into it entirely. The aim of one dalliance in the image on the computer is not just the one dalliance. The aim is that you would be unfaithful to your wife to the fullest extent. The aim of one dalliance into this sin or that sin, one little lie will grow into a life of deception, a life of abandonment of the faith. And he says this, he says, cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. See, John Owen has this sense of like, if we're not constantly given to the death of sin in our life, we will be given over to patterns of unrighteousness and abandon our faith entirely. A continuing faith is a holy faith. A faith that presses on is a faith that presses into righteousness. What Paul does next is he actually invites us into the fuel that fuels the engine in verses 20 through 21. Look at what he says. That our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Notice how he describes us. He's described those whose God is their belly, whose end is destruction. And in contrast, he describes us here. He says we're citizens of heaven. You know, that would be 
really meaningful to these Philippian people, right? These were uh, soldiers and kind of uh, people who had been dedicated to their country to such an extent that when you talked about citizenship, it would get them fired up, right? And he's saying, hey, if you are in Christ, you're a citizen of heaven. You have a otherworldly priority. You aren't bound to any priority of the nations around you or of the people around you. You aren't bound to the priority of your family or of uh, your father or mother or brother or sister. You are bound to the priority of God in heaven. That's what the gospel has done. It has reoriented us to be citizens of heaven. To describe us as citizens of heaven meant that our true identity is heavenly. We aren't tied to concerns of, of nations or worlds or whatever else. We are tied to the concerns of our true homeland in Christ. And he goes on and he unpacks. It's not just that we're citizens of heaven. We await our Savior. We believe that Jesus is returning. More specifically, that we believe that Jesus is returning to save us. He's returning to save us from ourselves. This is what Paul presses into next. He will transform us. He's, uh, our citizenship is in heaven. We're waiting a Savior, and this Savior will come, and He'll transform us to be like Him. He, that's what he says in verse 20, 21. He will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. Now, let's just consider the state of your lowly body here this morning. Last weekend, we had five families that were sick with COVID here at the church. We've had people who have cancer scares. We have people who deal with this pressure and that pressure. We have bodies that fail and falter. And God wants to take that lowly shell of a self, and He wants to transform it to be like His own. Remember when Jesus showed up and he started showing himself to the disciples after he was resurrected. And he shows up in the upper room. He doesn't, nobody, the doors were locked and Jesus just kind of shows up. He manifests himself. And Thomas comes to him in John 20, 21, somewhere in there. And he says, here's my wounds in my side. Come touch, come see the scars in my hands. Jesus still bore the scars, but the difference was that Jesus now was eternal. Jesus wasn't going to have his life stripped from him again, that he was now given to eternity, that he was raised from life by the power of God. The Father and the Spirit and the Son worked together to resurrect Jesus from the dead, and Jesus now is inviting us that someday as citizens of heaven, he'll strip us of our fleshly existence and he'll give us this eternal body like he himself has. He'll take away all of this weakness, all of this sinfulness, and he'll strip it away with finality. And I can't wait for this. You ever feel like that? You're just so weary, so tired of yourself. You think about what you did yesterday, the stupid thing you said to someone, the foolish way you interacted with your kid, the way you acted at work that was so selfish, and you just turn it over in your mind, and you think about it, and you think about it, and it's in that context that I just long for that part of me to be stripped away 
and be made new in Christ. Don't you? So from all of this, Paul calls them then to stand firm. Right? He's given us this massive idea saying, hey, our Savior's coming and he's going to strip away this, this sense of earthliness, this lowly body that you have, and he's going to give you this eternal body. And he says in 4.1, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. How do we stand firm? How do we press on? How do we continue in the faith? Paul just laid it out for us. We, we have this idea, we press into this idea of resurrection that someday God will raise us up, make us new. And that charges us to take on the thought life and the life of conduct that God has for us. See, we take hold of what has already been given to us. That's what Paul's laying out here. Look at verse 12 with me. Paul says this, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Kind of a weird statement from Paul, right? I press on to make something my own that God has already made me his own. It's the same tension that we saw in chapter 2, verse 12. He said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, knowing it's God who works in you. So why am I working if God already worked? Why is God working if I need to work? <laughs> Paul's setting a conundrum in front of us. And what he's saying is that we are to press into discipline because we're purchased. We're to press into discipline. We're to train ourselves for the purpose of godliness. We're to be holy as He is holy. We're to do all of the verbs of the New Testament, right? You're to, to pray and to read and study and memorize and fellowship and evangelize and serve and worship and put off the former life and put on the new life in Christ. We're supposed to do all of those things specifically because we are purchased, right? Specifically, Paul says he does this to make this, this resurrection his own. That is to take hold of this thing, this concept that someday God will make him new in Christ. And the only assurance that he has that he'll be in Christ is that he continues to press on. Let's see if we go back to our triangle slide here. Go ahead to the next slide there, Owen. It's not just that we put on a mindset and a conduct. It's that Jesus engages with us as Savior, that uh, Jesus uh, was going to be the one who came back and saved Paul and saved these Philippians and saves all those who have faith in Jesus. We're awaiting a Savior, like verse 21 has told us. And so we put on these practices because we know we have a great Savior in Jesus Christ. It's the truth of the gospel that revs the engine of our righteous conduct and our mindset that we're supposed to put on. It's the truth of our resurrection that actually prepares us to be more like Christ. And if you go about this life trying to just work up all of this and stir up this righteousness before God, you're going to fail time and time again. See, we are purchased. And in all of this talk of our work, we can lose sight that God has purchased for himself a people for his 
own possession. Paul says it in places like 1 Corinthians 6 when he's calling people to not sleep with a prostitute. He says, you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. In Acts chapter 20, when he's trying to tell the Ephesian elders to shepherd the church of God, he says, for God has purchased them with his own blood in Christ. In Titus chapter 2, verse 14, he says that he has purchased a people for his own possession that they might perform works of righteousness. You and I were purchased for the purpose of righteous living on this earth. So press in. Christian, keep going in the faith. To stop going, to stop to give up, to throw up our hands, or to, to kind of settle into an easy, ho-hum Christian life is madness when we think about it. It's the madness of someone that, that is hanging on to a lifeline and then lets go. It's the madness of someone who's drowning and has thrown a, a, a life raft or a life preserver and won't swim to it. See, just like we talked about as we opened, our temptation, though, isn't to abandon the faith, but to just kind of shrug our shoulders at the faith. Say, meh. We become bored. We're tempted to compromise our stance. We're tempted to comfort ourselves in other ways. We're tempted to rest, but never restart. To just take a little me time. Think like that? I just need a season for myself. Problem is, if you take a season for yourself, you, you might never come back. Hey, listen, there's, there's places for rest. There's places for good Biblical, faith-saturated rest. And the Bible speaks with abundant clarity about those things. But if you're just embracing an easier form of the Christian life, I just would stop and ask a lot of questions and engage with a lot of prayer. Listen, we've come through a long two years here, haven't we? And what I see in our church and in other churches around us, I see just weariness. And I'm not here to bang you over the head and say, get back to it. Let's go. I'm here to say, the gospel is too important for us to be lackadaisical. The gospel is too precious for us to be half-hearted. So Christian, keep pressing Lay hold of, of resurrection, your hope in resurrection. Lay hold of that every day. Press into uh, fellowship with one another. Press into areas of service. Press into biblical study and prayer. Press into patterns of fasting and meditating on the word of Scripture memorization. Press in so that you might finish the race well and be assured of your participation in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But if you want to fold your hands and you want to proverbially sit down on the couch, I'm just here to tell you, I don't know how much assurance you have. So don't let the cares and concerns of this world choke out your faith. 
Don't let the patterns of the pressures of the world on our faith allow us to just abandon the faith completely. Let's continually stir up the hope of Jesus' resurrection that we might participate in it someday. Let's pray to that end. Lord, we ask that you would stir us up to continue to press on, that you would give us a passion to finish well, that you would allow us the energy, the mindset of devotion that would embrace a high calling in faith. Lord, I pray that you wouldn't allow us to be deceived to think that our lives don't matter. But for your kingdom, our lives matter greatly. I pray, Lord, that you would give us a sense of urgency in the gospel of Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, we're going to see.